0: If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Uh, Just a reminder that uh, after the worship service, uh, there is Sunday school. If you don't have a class, the missions class just meets out that way and to the right. And my friend uh, Rob Wisey is sharing today. And I believe he's told me that every theological question that you have, most difficult ones possible... He will answer this morning, so you'll, you'll want to go here, uh, Pastor Rob. Let's uh, go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, indeed, your Son is alive. The grave is empty. Salvation is through faith in your Son, Jesus, the grace that you extend to us, what we could not do for ourselves. Your son did, as he paid the penalty of sin through death, and then he conquered death through resurrection, and offers forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe and receive. And Father, as we look at your inspired, inerrant word, we pray that you would allow us to learn new things or remember things forgotten, that we would be impacted and transformed and changed by your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Today, you and I are going to look at 1 Kings chapter 2. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, we have the continued transference of power from King David. He was the second king of Israel. The first was Saul to his son Solomon. And interestingly enough, in the text, David is going to tell his Solomon, his son Solomon, a little bit about what it means to be a man, to be God's man. Now, if you have lived in the United States for any length of time, you know that there are lots of definitions about what it means to be a man. In fact, if you've been paying attention, you know that in some segments of society, we have now become a gender-neutral society, and we no longer want to say he or she. Instead, we want to say zeer or z zee or here or it. Just for the record, maybe a few of my co-workers are it, but I am not. I go by he, not it. And yet that's the way society is going. And so I thought, you know what? I want to figure out this gender thing a little bit. So I went to the internet because if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. (laughs) And so I learned three things. I just mean these in jest. Three things about men. The first is this. One woman said, duct tape. It can fix everything. But men. A second gal said this, why do men like intellectual women? Because opposites attract. Now that's a problem because I have a very bright wife. And the third gal said, men who don't understand women can be divided into two camps, those who are married and those who are not. In other words, we don't understand women at all. Now, a little more serious. I've left the internet. I've gone to three books. I want to read three quotes, and I agree with all three. Manhood is the defeating of childhood narcissism. In other words, if you want to be a man, grow up. We don't need Adult children. We don't need those. Second, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ like servant leadership, protection, and home provision. Got a nice wasp here. Third, I have this quote Masculinity is not about being the biggest, fastest, strongest or the one who sleeps with the most women, nor the one who has the most money. The one who has the most accomplishments is not necessarily masculine. In fact, it is often men who covet such things who are covering and compensating for the greatest insecurities. Let us revere the one who loves deeply. He is a man. He does not meet seriousness, with foolishness when seriousness is what is needed. Perhaps most important, he doesn't walk through life declaring or acting like he's a man. No, the masculine man goes through a journey, a process of self-discovery, that is, he grows up, and he figures out what needs to be acquired. The tools, knowledge, wisdom, grace, love, passion, joy, to pursue his God-given destiny. He's not at war with other people, conquering them. He is the one joining forces, searching for the win-win. Masculinity is about being kind to others and pursuing God's dream for us with all passion and energy. With that introduction, I wanna read from 1 Kings 2. We'll read the first four verses. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son Solomon saying, now think about what's going on. David has been king for 40 years. He's about to pass the mantle on to his son Solomon. Now if you and I were at the edge of life going into eternity and we knew Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and we had the opportunity to pass something on to someone we love, someone younger than us, what would you and I say? What would we pass on, seizing the moment, the last words that we can utter? That's essentially the situation we have here. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is it written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, You lack, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now this is David talking to his son Solomon. If you and I know much about the Bible, we know that David is a hero. In many ways, he is considered Israel's greatest king. Many would say that David is a man's man. And I wonder why. Will we say that David is a man's man because as a young boy, when he was out watching the flocks that belonged to his father, he killed bears and lions, both plural words, in First Samuel 17, he killed them to protect the flocks. Is that why David is a man's man? Or is it because as a teenager, When his older brothers were at the front fighting for Israel and the Philistines sent out their champion, a man named Goliath, a mammoth of a man, and all the Jews were cowering hoping that their straw was not drawn and that they would have to go out and face Goliath, this teenage boy named David said, I'll go take him out. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should stand against the glory of God? And so David went out with a few pebbles, and he hit Goliath between the headlights, took him out, and is that why David is a man's man? Or is David a man's man because in his 40 years of rule, he expanded Israel's borders, And he took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel for the last 3,000 years. Is that why David is a man's man? Or is it his sexual, and I put in quotes, conquests? Because David was an immoral man on more than one occasion. 1 Chronicles 3 tells us he had seven wives. We know of multiple children. We know of concubines. We know that he had a sordid affair with Bathsheba. Is he a man's man? Because he's an immoral man and he has all of these immoral sexual escapades. Is that why David is a man's man? Because David goes to his son and he's about to pass on words of wisdom, and he says to his son, be the man. And so what does he say is the man? Well, he essentially says the man is the one who embraces Scripture. The man, the woman, the individual who God approves of, who God desires us to become, is the one who knows the word of God. Now think of David in a passage in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, the transition of power is going from the first king Saul to the second king David, and this is what God said of David, 1 Samuel 13, 14. He makes this statement. But now your kingdom Saul shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man, David, after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him, David, to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now I don't know about you, but I'm very encouraged by that passage because I don't think I would ever say David is a man after God's own heart. God says, don't count the army, and he counts the army. God says, don't sleep with a woman who's not your wife, and he sleeps with a woman who's not his wife. God's constantly telling David what not to do, and David does it. And so I think there's hope for some of us, hope for me, because God says, David is a man after his heart, and Saul, you are not. What's the difference between them? It's not that they both sin and one sins more and one sins less. That's not really it, though that may be true. It's that Saul lived for his own glory and David lived for God's glory. A man after, a woman after God's own heart lives life for God's glory. And so when David comes to the end of his life and he says to Solomon, You are to be a man. He doesn't mention all of these exploits that some might mention, military or intellectual or sexual exploits, some of which, quite frankly, are unsavory. He doesn't mention those. David has come to an understanding that a person after God's heart, a man or a woman after God's heart, is someone who lives for God's glory. It's someone who honors God. It's someone who constantly reads God's Word, who spends time in prayer, which is just talking to the Lord, who's constantly sending up sentence prayers. Lord, it's a beautiful day. Lord, these trees that are turning, they're wonderful. Lord, I almost got hit, or I almost hit somebody with my car. Thank you that we didn't have an accident. Lord, thank you for the daily provisions Lord, and we constantly talk with God, it's a person who communes with the Lord, who comes regularly to his house to hear about the Lord, who spends time personally with the Lord, who keeps short accounts, constantly confessing, agreeing with God of our sin, and the power of God's Spirit repenting, turning from our sin. A man's man, a woman's woman for God is exactly what David describes in verses 2 and 3. Let me read it again. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And then he goes on to call it the word. Seven different phrases. When David comes to the end of his life and he passes on the most important thing that he wants his son to grasp, to live, to embrace seven different phrases he uses to say, be in this book, know this book, love this book, memorize this book, meditate upon this book, know God. Now, there are some commentators who I think embrace a lot of wasted time trying to parse and parcel the seven different words. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by that? I don't think that's the point at all. Seven is the number of perfection. It's actually the number of completeness. And Solomon actually didn't even have the complete canon, the corpus of Scripture, but we do 66 books. And it reveals who God is. And you say, well, wait a second. I'm a Roman's woman. Good. You got 65 more books to go. Well, I'm a New Testament saint. Great. 27 books down. You got 39 more to go. Even First and Second Kings has things for you and I to embrace. Know the word. As I thought about that, I thought of Lieutenant General that's three stars, William Harrison. Lieutenant General William Harrison is a kinetic man's man, a God's man, a man after God's heart. He's a West Point graduate. He served in the 30th Infantry during World War II, the one that General Eisenhower said was the most decorated and most accomplished. He led it. He's also an American hero. When we alleviated Belgium, he was the first ally to enter the country. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor. He received the Silver Star. He received the Bronze Star of Valor. He received the Silver Cross. He's one of the few generals ever to get a Purple Heart being wounded in action. In every way, he's an American hero. During the Korean War, when the Korean War ended and an armistice, a ceasefire was needed with North Korea, he was the man that President Eisenhower chose to negotiate on our side. After his military career, for 18 years, he led OCF, Officers Christian Fellowship. He is, in every way, an incredible man. And while he was in West Point, age 22, he made this decision in life. He said, every year I'm going to read through the Old Testament, and I'm going to read through the New Testament four times. Every year of my life. Now, he was at war. And during his breaks, he would catch up in his reading. And at age 92, when he could no longer read because his sight was gone, he had read through the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. And believer and unbeliever alike would say of this man, he had an incredible amount of wisdom. He loved God. He loved God's Word. He was immersed in God's Word. And he lived a rich life for the kingdom. And David comes to the end of his life. Saul has slain his thousands. David his ten thousands. He is a kinetic man, a warrior. But that's not why he's a man's man. What he wanted to pass on to his son is be in the book. Immerse yourself in the book. Study the book. Study and and meditate on it. And get to know God. Was wonderful as David's advice is in verses 1 to 4, he gets a little bit of mixed reviews in verses 5 to 9. Let me read it to us. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt of his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. You remember Absalom was the first Son of David that tried to take the throne of his father. One of several sons. Adonijah was another. And there is also with you Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day I went down to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. (laughs) But I didn't promise my son wouldn't. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you, should do, what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray hat down with the blood to Sheol. Understand we are reading historical narrative. Historical narrative is 40% of the Bible. Historical narrative, it is inspired because God led the human author to write exactly what God intended. It is inerrant, that is, it tells us exactly what actually took place. But historical narrative does not mean that everything we read, we say, oh, go and do likewise. We need epistolary literature, or the Law of Moses, or books like Romans, or First and Second Corinthians, or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that kind of literature to evaluate. We know the action took place, but is it is an action that we want to imitate because it's good, or we want to shun because it's evil. That's how we interact with historical literature. So you can imagine that chapter 2, this part, is getting mixed reviews. Some say that David is doing right and encouraging Solomon to do right, and some say absolutely not. This is a bloodbath. For instance, Terence Friedheim says, politics as usual, but with more than the usual compliment of ruthlessness. Walter Brueggemann says, Solomon is callous, who systematically eliminates all threats. A few others Refer to David and Solomon as Machiavellian or Marxian or other brutes of history. Is that fair? Well, my goal today is not to defend either Solomon or David, but that is not fair. We need to understand what's actually going on before we make a judgment of what David passes on to his son Solomon. We'll start with Adonijah. Adonijah is the son who tried to steal David's throne. And had he stolen David's throne, he almost certainly would have put Solomon, his younger brother, to death. Probably would have put David to death. Probably would have put Bathsheba, the queen mother, to death. So he has tried to take the throne. And remember, God stopped him. Through Solomon, God stopped him. And you remember that Solomon said, I'm going to forgive you, but don't mess up again. If you mess up again, I will put you to death. And so as we read the rest of the text, we don't have time today, but if we were to go on in the text, we would discover that Adonijah goes to the queen mother, Bathsheba, and says, you know, my father David has died. He left behind a bunch of widows. There's this one widow. She's caught my eye. Abishag, love is in the air. Can I marry her? And we think, wow, that's great. Settle down. Have a family. Wonderful, right? Wrong. If he marries Abishag, there's a reason he doesn't ask Solomon. If he marries Abishag, that's a claim on the throne. This is coup attempt number two. He's trying to take Solomon's throne. And if he takes Solomon's throne, he puts Solomon to death. He puts Bathsheba to death. He usurps God's anointed because, remember, God chose Solomon to be on the throne before Solomon was even born. God said a man named Solomon will sit on that throne. And so this is error number two. Attempt against the will of God number two. And so Adonijah is put to death. The next one we interact with, verses 26 and 27, is uh, a a priest, Abiathar. And you remember Abiathar was part of the coup attempt against Solomon. But because he's a man of the cloth, uh, David and Solomon say, all right, we're going to spare your life, but we're going to remove you from your leadership position." Now, by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 4, we see that this priest has confessed, he's repented. He's actually been restored. So it's a great account, but he is forgiven. There is mercy shown because of a change of heart. Next up is Joab. We can read about him in uh, verses 28 to 35. Now, Joab is a general. Joab has been a general for a long time. He's a man of protocol. He's a a man of the uniform. He knows that you follow orders and you're loyal. But Joab has been disloyal several times. First, he murdered two innocent men, Amasa and Abner, against David's wishes, And then he tried to usurp David and Solomon's throne by joining Adonijah. So he is a man of the uniform that actually joined a coup attempt. Now David should have handled Joab, right? But David's gotten weak. He's gotten uh, less vigor in his life, and he does nothing to Joab. And so he says, Solomon, handle him. Now we could say, well, okay. Throw him in the brig for the rest of his life. That's a possibility. But remember, as far back as Genesis 9, 6, and as recent as Romans 13:1 1-7, Old Testament, New Testament, God said for certain violent acts of murder and others, the state can, doesn't have to, but is permissively allowed capital punishment. So at the very least... Solomon has both Old and New Testament rights to put this military man who's involved in murder and a coup attempt to death, and he chooses to do so. Finally, there's Shammai. He's the most difficult, verses 36 to 43. He's the most difficult because Shammai really hasn't committed murder. Yeah, he's kind of an insurrectionist. He's tried to do a coup attempt. If you remember Shammai, when David is fleeing because Absalom has taken his throne, Shammai is kicking rocks on David and mocking him and cheering on somebody taking David's throne from him, a coup attempt. And he's cursed David. And so Solomon says, this is the deal. You are not a good guy. You're actually a Saul, the first king groupie. You're from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin never liked David, never liked Solomon, always wanted to undermine him. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you live. But you're under city arrest. You can't leave Jerusalem. Even more specifically, you can't cross the Kidron Valley. You say, what's with that? And so Shammai for three years obeys. And then one of his men goes running across to get away from Shammai and Shammai throws caution to the wind and goes after and he crosses the Kidron Valley and he's put to death. And you say, whoa, how ruthless. Do you know what's on the other side of the Kidron Valley? That's where the tribe of Benjamin resides. In other words, what Solomon would not allow Shammai to do was go back to his group that were planning a coup. By crossing the Kidron Valley, he has united himself with a group that wants to undermine the Solomonic reign, the Davidic reign, the appointment by God, probably taking Solomon's life, Bathsheba's life, and sending the kingdom into ruin. And so he is put to death. I don't think it's fair to say that David and Solomon are Machiavellian or Marxian or brutal. I think it is fair to say that they're assessing the situation. And they're protecting the kingdom. So what are we to do with all of this? How do we apply it? The first thing, and it's the most important thing, is David said to Solomon, if you want to be God's man, and we could say if you want to be God's woman, if you want to be God's person, be in the book. Meditate on the book. Know the book. Be regular in personal devotion and prayer and corporate teaching. I love Psalm 119. When I was in seminary, one of my profs, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, made us memorize this word for word and write it down. And every word was minus one. That's not fair. There's a lot more than 100 words. But I don't have it memorized anymore, so I'm going to read it. <laughs> Psalm 119:97 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. A man's man of God, a woman's woman of God, is an individual who gets regularly into God's Word and makes it our priority. Let's consider these four individuals. Adajan, Abiathar, Joab, Shammai. The first one is Adajan. He's the poster child for the individual who makes job, career, more important than God's kingdom. He's the poster child. Before Solomon was born, God said to the Davidic family, the next king will be a man named Solomon. And what did Adonijah spend his whole life doing? Chasing career. In his case, a career that God said you can't have. God said the next king will be Solomon. Adonijah said over my dead body, I will be the next king. And career was more important than God's will. Let's not be that woman. Let's not be that man that puts career Over the kingdom of God. The second is Abiathar. Abiathar is the poster child of the opportunist. He's looking for the ways the winds are blowing. He wants to be culturally acceptable, politically correct. He thinks to himself, you know what? Solomon is just a boy, Adonijah is a hardened warrior. I'm going with him because he is going to win this coup attempt. He's an opportunist. And again, he's thinking of being politically correct, of being culturally acceptable as more important than the will of God. As a priest, he knew. He knew that God declared that Solomon would be the next king. But that's not the way the winds were blowing. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to do where the winds are going because I'm going to be with the in crowd. Don't be that woman. Don't be that man. Thankfully, 1 Kings 4.4, Abiathar was transformed and he confessed his past and he repented of it. The last two are General Joab and Shammai. Pure and simple, they're materialists. They were going after possessions. They both saw opportunities. The general saw opportunities to murder two people and to take their property. And Shammai saw opportunity to regain land in the tribe of Benjamin if he opposed the king. They're materialists, and they saw possessions as more important than the kingdom. Don't be that woman. Don't be that man. Solomon got great advice from David. Be the one that loves the Word, meditates on the Word, studies the Word, applies the Word, lives out the Word. The man's man of God, the woman's woman of God, is a person who lives the word. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for a little bit of time for us to just examine a few verses in First Kings chapter two. And Father, it's so much easier to talk about being a woman of God, a man of God, than to actually be one. But help us to do so. And help us to love your word, meditate your word, learn your word, apply your word. To be like General Harrison, who is known as a man of incredible wisdom because he knew you. Allow that to be true for us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.